Welcome back to the program. Winston Churchill once referred to the former Soviet Union as an enigma wrapped in a riddle surrounded by mystery. Much the same could be said about the Vatican. A large bureaucracy, competing political interests, the potential and reality of scandal and cover-up. My guest, John Thavis, has spent almost 30 years covering the Vatican. He's walked its hallowed halls, was one of the boys on the bus on the papal plane, and understands both the human and spiritual side of this seemingly monolithic and often flawed institution. John Thavis recently retired from the Catholic News Service and has written a book about his experiences covering the Vatican for all those years entitled The Vatican Diaries, a behind-the-scenes look at the power, personalities, and politics at the heart of the Catholic Church. John Thavis, thanks so much for joining us. Yes, happy to join you. It's great to have you here. One of the things that we think about when we think about the Vatican and, and the Church is really this monolithic institution that has control of, of all that it touches. In fact, the reality is is far different, as you talk about. Exactly. Uh, one of the first things I discovered as a young reporter covering the Vatican was that, uh, you know, I would go into uh, an interview and start asking questions, and uh, I would exhaust my questions, and then the cardinal or archbishop, whoever I was interviewing, would start asking me questions about other Vatican offices. And, and I realized that I was being a conduit for information, that he had no other way to get that information. And one of the great secrets about the Vatican is that there's very little cross-communication between offices, and therefore very little coordination between offices. So if, if you think of the Vatican as a monolith, it's, that's not going to be the case. The Vatican, I, I knew, was a place where you know, individual people had a lot of freedom to operate, and uh, you know sometimes they were not the top people; they were the middle people, and they would become protagonists in ways that were good and bad. And in many ways, while we think of the Vatican in, in a kind of ceremonial way, that it is very much a place where image and appearance and even theatricality sometimes really speaks volumes for the very reasons that you're talking about. Well, exactly. Uh, you know, the theatricality is, is uh, part of what goes on there. And, and sometimes, you know, although the Vatican has had centuries to kind of practice this, sometimes that comes unglued as well. Uh, you know, that there, are, there are times when popes, for example, have been blindsided during public ceremonies. Uh, there, was, there was one occasion a few years ago when, uh, Pope Benedict was sitting in St. Peter's Basilica listening to uh, a homily from uh, the papal preacher, who was a theologian. And the papal preacher started talking about the church being unfairly accused on sex abuse issues. And he compared it to Jews under Nazism. And I mean, this was shocking, probably even to Pope Benedict, and the Vatican quickly put out a statement saying that, that those are the views of this preacher, not of the Vatican. But the fact is, no one had vetted his talk beforehand. No one had, had said, you can't say that, you shouldn't say that, you're going to embarrass the Pope, you're going to embarrass the Church. So, you know, as I say, individuals have a surprising degree of freedom to operate at the Vatican, and, uh, and it surprised me to discover this. The other thing that overarching in the story you tell and, and in the time that you covered the Vatican is the way in which the various popes along the way, particularly the past three, have reflected 
in very much the changes taking place in the world, that John Paul reflected this era of globalization, the world shrinking, coming together, becoming smaller, and that like much of the world, particularly the West, there was this reaction to that, a kind of conservative pushback, which really seemed to result in Pope Benedict, and then a reality again, a realization again, that modernity is here, we've got to deal with it, that is reflected in Pope Francis in many ways. I think you're, you're probably right about that. Uh, the pendulum has swung back and forth, certainly. Uh, John Paul II was, you know, in some ways very conservative and doctrinaire, but he, he took the world kind of by storm by traveling around the world and by uh, speaking people's language, you know. He was at home in environments outside of the church. Pope Benedict was not at home in those environments. Pope Benedict was, he went into a seminary as a very young boy, and basically he never got out of that, uh, that kind of seminary mentality. And he was a very smart theologian, a brilliant man on, on many, on many, uh, in many areas. But, you know, he didn't have the pastoral touch, and he didn't have the managerial touch, which was needed to become pope, to be pope, to be an effective pope. Pope Francis comes in with a whole new set of qualities, and uh, they're qualities that we don't really associate with the papacy too much. Bluntness, openness, simplicity, uh, a willingness to do without the pomp and the ceremony, and it strikes people as very refreshing. In many ways, Benedict seemed like a kind of last hurrah for the old ways, and that it simply was not going to work. It wasn't going to play in the world that we live in today. Well, uh, that's, that's an interesting point of view. I, I think you would find many people who agree with that. His, his diehard fans, Pope Benedict's diehard fans, would not. Uh, <laughs> there was a feeling under Benedict that we had eight years of basically identity building. You know, it was, after all, Pope Benedict, who as a cardinal had essentially written the catechism of the Catholic Church. Again, codifying, here's what we believe, and here's what you have to believe in order to call yourself Catholic. And that identity-building approach has really gone out the window under Pope Francis. I mean, he has said point-blank, the Church should not use its doctrine to keep people out. We have to stop being the gatekeeper. We have to go and open up a dialogue with people who have drifted away from the church, with the people who don't come to Mass every week. So, so uh, it's certainly, again, the pendulum has swung out toward, yes, uh, accepting modernity, but especially accepting men and women where they live today and not necessarily demanding that they uh, first meet all the requirements uh, of church teaching before they call themselves Catholic. When you look back to the collection of cardinals that elected Benedict, how different is that collection? How different is that college of cardinals from the one that elected Francis? You know, to be honest, it's, it wasn't that much different. Mm -hmm. I think the circumstances had changed. I think when, in 2005, the conclave that elected Benedict, they went for the most familiar figure. You know, the cardinals really don't know themselves that well when they come together for a conclave, and they have very few days to get to know each other. 
but they're not out traveling around the world figuring out, oh, is this guy a good archbishop? Uh, let me see him in action. <laughs> you know, they, they know them by reputation. But they knew Pope Benedict because he had been at the Vatican for 20-some years, and they had spoken with him, they trusted him, they knew who he was, they elected him Pope. When Pope Francis was elected, it was a very different situation. I think a lot of cardinals felt it was time to rein in the Vatican's bureaucracy, make it work better, make it smaller, make it more efficient, and you know, stop these kind of embarrassing episodes for the Church. And so they wanted somebody willing to do that. And, and they found in Pope Francis, Cardinal Bergoglio, a man who seemed up to the test. Talk a little bit about the tensions that exist inside the Vatican, which you've had to deal with as a journalist for virtually the entire time that you covered it, between modernity and information being so free-flowing today, and the internal tensions and desires inside the Vatican among many to keep it secret, as it has been for so long. Right. There's uh, a long, centuries-old tradition of keeping everything secret, as you can imagine. Uh, as a journalist, I found ways around this quite consistently. Uh, and yet, the Vatican seems to have a strange attitude toward information, even today. Uh, I can remember times, for example, when Pope Benedict would speak off the cuff and say very interesting things. Uh, for example, he once he once uh, he once said that uh, when he was being elected, they were counting the ballots during the conclave. He felt like the guillotine was being prepared for him, and he said, "I prayed to God that He could spare me that, but I guess God wasn't listening that day." <laughs> well, that that part was cut out of the official Vatican transcript. So, you know, they ha- they actually have an office that goes over what the Pope says and then corrects it for the history books. And, you know, they don't understand that communication no longer works that way, that once it's out, it's out. You know, it's been reported. And, uh, and so it's interesting to see Pope Francis, uh, who basically is ignoring the usual Vatican filters. He doesn't have his speeches vetted, and uh, he speaks off the cuff most of the time. He speaks directly to journalists. He's spoken to, given several interviews, which Pope never used to do. And so, you know, I, I think here we're getting an direct, simple, blunt sometimes statements from a Pope instead of these, uh, these very erudite theological arguments that we used to hear. In terms of your own experience, how different was it covering John Paul II versus Benedict versus Pope Francis? John Paul II was uh, an actor on the world stage. He'd actually been trained as an actor. And you always had that sense that he knew that as, when, when he was traveling or when he was at the Vatican, he knew that people were watching. He knew the world was watching. He knew the media was watching. And he always gave the media a news story. He was very good about that. He would often speak about... Uh, about you know, current events, current topics, controversial issues, and journalists always have plenty to write about. Pope Benedict was, uh, for many journalists, uh, a disaster because, you know, they, they didn't, he didn't do that. He didn't give them something. He, he was talking about saints. He was talking about uh, 
early church fathers. He was talking about what we believe as Catholics. And I can remember one of his early trips, uh, a wire service friend of mine came up to me, and we were given the Pope's speeches for that day. There were four of them. And he, he said, John, this is all religion. What am, what am I going to write about? And, you know, I sympathize with him. Now, as someone working for Catholic News Service, I could work with religious topics, but <laughs> they had trouble. Pope Francis is a pope the media loves, mainly because he's saying things in a fresh, simple, I would say evangelical way. He's a man who, you know, to me, seemed to have walked out of the pages of the gospel in a way, uh, and, and not out of the halls of the Vatican bureaucracy. And, and that makes him very new, refreshing, somebody willing to do things differently. So he's a hot news story right now. But also connected to modernity and the world in very real ways. I mean, when he talks about the danger of unemployment of young people and the loneliness of old age, there's a connection that, that is the kind of thing we haven't heard before from the Vatican. Well, that's exactly right. He's actually quite tuned in to the way most people live. And you get the feeling that others before him were not. Uh, you know, when, what did he say uh, a few months ago? He said, how can it be that it's not a news item when an older homeless person dies of exposure? But it is news when the stock market loses two points. Well, clearly this is a guy who at least knows what makes the news and what doesn't. And, uh, and he sees a, a problem there. And he's not willing, you know, he's, he's, he's more than willing to talk about it. So, yes, I, I think he's somebody who, uh, although he's lived all his life as a priest, uh, he's clued into the way, the, the problems that modern people are dealing with on a day-to-day -day basis. And, uh, you know, that's unusual for a pope. Is it your sense that the things that he is doing as a pope, the way he is looking at the world being connected to these things that you're talking about are things that are indigenous to him and will be historically indigenous to his papacy, or are they things that you believe will have a profound effect in really changing the church and the way it acts in the world? I think in large part the answer depends on how long this pope reigns. Uh, you know, if he's if he's there five, six, seven, eight years from now, then I think he'll have a, a much greater impact um, than if he, he exits the scene earlier. You know, popes uh, always seem to have a lasting impact on their successors because they choose the cardinals who will vote for the next pope. And five years from now, Pope Francis will have chosen more than half the cardinals who vote in the next conclave. So. That's one thing. More importantly, probably, is the people he chooses as bishops. And again, five years from now, he will have, he will have chosen not quite half, but a, a good percentage of the world's bishops. And it's going to take that, I think, before his idea of reforms are implemented throughout the wider church. Because unless these ideas filter down to local dioceses and local priests, local parishes, you know, you're, you're going to have people in local communities who are very enthusiastic about the Pope, but unless they go and hear the same thing from their local pastor, 
they're not going to come back to church, and they're not going to have much to do with the local church. So I, I think that's a key question, is, is how much this filters down, and I think the, more, the longer he stays in office, the more it will filter down. You talk a lot about the Vatican bureaucracy, the Curia, certainly how powerful it has been, even with its uh, various bouts of incompetence along the way. To what extent, and particularly given that Francis is doing so much outside of that institution, to what extent is there pushback, powerful pushback, from within that Vatican bureaucracy, and what negative impact might it have? Well, I try to gauge that every time I go to Rome, and I was there just a couple of weeks ago. I always make it a point to talk with uh, a lot of Vatican officials, and and you're right, there is pushback, there's a little bit of resentment, and there's a lot of disorientation and apprehension about what's going to come. The main reason is that the Pope is not really consulting the Vatican bureaucracy on how to reform itself. The Pope has called in outsiders. In some cases, outside consulting firms for the very first time to tell him, look, I want to streamline these agencies. What should I do? And of course, that sends shudders through the, through the old guard at the Vatican. Uh, the idea of outside consulting firms telling the Vatican what to do is just unheard of. Um, so big changes are in store. Uh, I don't think there is any organized resistance at the Vatican. I think what I find is resistance on a kind of a, a personal level. But the fact is, Pope Francis has so much support and momentum from people around the world that almost no one uh, says anything publicly about, you know, maybe this, there's a better way to do things. Maybe reforming the, the Roman Curia is not the way to go. Uh, there's very little public criticism of the Pope right now, and I, I think in the end, he's going to be successful in what he's trying to do. We've seen so much, mostly in fiction, albeit, about political battles inside the Vatican, even life and death struggles, and, and of course, stories historically about popes being murdered, etc. I mean, are, are there real dangers that exist within that universe? For, for someone that comes along that really is pushing back against the traditional institutions? Um, you know, I, I've i never been a, a believer in conspiracy theories, <laughs> and uh, especially at the Vatican, mainly because you need a, a higher level of organization than you find at the Vatican. You may have people who don't like what a pope is doing. Uh, I don't attribute, uh, you know, the kind of evil or, or criminality to, to these people that others have. Sure, I read the book about was John Paul I murdered. I was there in Rome, and, uh, and the immediate reaction by Romans was they killed him. Uh, he was too good. He was trying to reform. But I think that's popular imagination. Mm -hmm. And as far as I know, you know, John Paul I was a very sick man who never should have been elected pope. He had terrible circulation problems. He had a heart attack. And, and I, I think Pope Francis probably has nothing to fear on that score. Uh, I think probably the bigger danger is that he might be outmaneuvered in some way, uh, but, but not a physical danger. Mm -hmm. One of the other things that you talk about is the human side of all this, the opposite of what we're talking about now, and that so many things that happen happen because of mistakes or incompetence 
or because, as you referred to before, one hand of the bureaucracy doesn't talk to the other? You see that everywhere in the Vatican. You see, you see people working kind of on different sides of an issue or pushing in different directions. You know, one rather famous uh, episode I related in my book was the sainthood cause of Pope Pius XII. This was very controversial because, as you may know, Pius XII uh, was criticized, has been criticized by Jewish groups and individuals for not speaking out enough um, during the extermination attempt uh, by the Nazi regime. And uh, his defenders, of course, say, no, no, he worked quietly. He knew that speaking out loudly was, would only draw retribution. Uh, but the fact was, his sainthood cause has been delayed uh, in part because popes have said, no, we can't do this yet. It's not ready. And you have, on the other hand, lower level officials who are pushing very, very strongly to move that sainthood cause forward. And so the chapter in my book explains how these lower level officials actually uh, managed to to, uh, to push it forward despite the objections of some of the popes. So uh, you see this all the time. And in, in a way, I think it's healthy for the Vatican. Uh, I think it's healthy for the fact that they don't necessarily have a tight leash on every single person who works there. Obviously, as a journalist, I'm glad that there are leaks. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I'm happy to be the recipient of leaks. And, and I'm glad that everything doesn't necessarily work in lockstep. You were talking about sainthood a moment ago. This decision to combine John the Twenty-Third and John Paul II, what's that all about? Right. In fact, it's canonization. They're both being right. declared saints. Uh, I think this is a very smart move by Pope Francis. Uh, you know, there was a lot of momentum to make John Paul II a saint, even immediately, and I think that was probably inevitable, and Pope Francis saw that. But I think he also probably said to himself, where is, this, where is the sainthood cause of John Twenty-Third?" And, well, it turned out the Vatican was still studying that cause, uh, looking at possible miracles that have been submitted. Uh, but it was kind of lingering there, and the Pope simply said, well, we don't need another miracle. We, everyone knows he's a saint, and I'm going to declare him a saint the same day that I make John Paul II the saint. Now, the Pope could do this because he's the Pope. He is the supreme legislator in the Church, and, and he made his decision. And I, I think it's a good move because, you know, he's really holding up models uh, for the Church that are quite different. John Paul II was a very inspirational figure for a whole generation of Catholics. John XXIII, though, called the Second Vatican Council. He was the one who opened the Church's dialogue with modernity. And, and I think that's very much in line with what Pope Francis wants to pursue. And so I think he's making a point here, that we're a Church that's big enough to embrace John Paul II and John XXIII, and, uh, and he's making it clear that, yes, John XXIII inspires me and uh, and let's get him to the finish line here on sainthood. Talk a little bit, finally, about the decision of Benedict to resign. You write about it. In some ways, you were surprised and yet not surprised. Well, in fact, the, the day Benedict was elected, I said to myself, I bet he's going to resign. And the reason I said that is because, as a cardinal, 
Joseph Ratzinger had pointed out that a pope could resign under church law. And, and merely pointing it out was, was a way, I think, of reminding people that this is an option that should be on the table. And Benedict, as we know, is a very rational person. He did not have that kind of mystical relationship to the papacy that John Paul II did. He, he felt that you can pray to remain healthy as a pope, but you can't demand that from God. And so he, I think he early on decided, at some point, I'll resign. What I found remarkable was the fact that when he did finally resign, it wasn't because he was on his deathbed or even had a serious illness. It was because he said, in the modern day and age, to be an effective pope, you need to have a tremendous amount of energy, and I no longer have that energy. And so here was a very traditional-minded pope who was saying, essentially, you have to adapt the papacy to the demands of the modern age. And again, just remarkable coming from this man who in many ways was a traditionalist. Did he realize, essentially, that the world had passed him by? Well, I think he didn't want the world to be passing the church by completely. Uh, and I think that's what worried him. I think he realized that if a pope got sick, if a pope had to disappear for months or years, then yes, the world would stop paying attention. And he felt that that would tremendously damage the church, so he wasn't going to let that happen. John Thavis, and the book is The Vatican Diaries, a behind-the-scenes look at the power, personalities, and politics at the heart of the Catholic Church. John, I thank you so much for spending time with us today. Thank you. We'll take a break. I'll be right back. 